And I said, yes. So this gentleman gave me a list of instructions, things I had to do, uh, things I had to eat. Uh, I had to, it was very strange. Three days before I had to do this big list of stuff, uh, talk to an, a non-human animal three times a day, uh, touch a plant and talk to it three times a day. Uh, every time I made a left turn, I had to make three right turns and I had to do that for three days. And eventually after these three days in Michigan and we walked into the woods and he sings, he's a retired automotive worker and his, he, he came from calls elves and I don't know what they are. I call them an elf because he called it an elf. They're fully expecting at some point someone dressed up like the keeper elf. Um, we stood there, he sang, and I saw what he was talking about when he said an elf, which was a, a creature that was 11 to 12 inches tall, um, that was hooved, that had arms and hands, was covered in fur, had a flat face, uh, big kind of ears for itself. And when I ran over to see it, it, it was gone. Uh, and it was just a, a very strange experience, which culminated in a year of coincidences and synchronicities. The past, the year after that was just high strangeness on all levels. Uh, and I'm to the point now where I'm writing the whole thing down in a book. I have a photo that I took that night of the creature and short of the elf story. Mm-hmm. That is very, very weird. I had my. I, I could get in. I could get into it in depth in it, but it's strange. Over the past year of, of having this encounter, um, it has really affected my day to day life to the point where the the less I discuss it, the less it influences my life. It's it's almost as if seeing that creature has had some effect on my day to day reality, and the more that I talk about it and, and give in to the experience of it, the stranger my life becomes. And right now I just can't have that. So one of the reasons that I haven't been talking about it as much it has nothing to do with the fact that it's not real. It's, it's more real than I've ever thought it was at this point. Um, but it's just a very, very strange for someone who has seen what I thought to be ghosts or seen what I thought to be UFOs, talked to time travelers, talked to a person who was zombified, uh, Seeing an elf is just a, a, a radical mind shift. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you something weird. The minute we went into that story, I was hearing you fine. And you're coming through clearly on my end. But for some reason, our entire feed with our audience seemed to cut out during that story, and now it's popped back on. Really? Yeah. That's odd. <laughs> it is I odd. Seems, I seems to be fine here. I've just been sitting on the couch. Well, I, I know, and I'm sitting in my in my nice chair here that I got for Christmas from from one of our members of the team, Eric Markham, and I, I'm doing great. So I'm sure everybody else is uh, is starting to come back now, and they're all like, "Damn it, I missed the elf story. I missed it." Oh well. Well, that's you know, it's strange because when I started writing the book. Um, I found that this thing, this creature, entity, energy, whatever it is, actually influences how I'm writing the books. So 
I had written a, a opening of a chapter. It was three paragraphs, and I went out to my car to go grocery shopping, take a break from it, and my car wouldn't start, which I didn't think was anything. And so I walked to the grocery store, which is only a few blocks away, and my credit cards wouldn't work. And as I was walking home, I thought, oh, I wonder if this is the influence of that thing. Just kind of laughed to myself about that. And when I got home, my computer, I had left it running, had crashed and had rebooted up. So I looked to see what had saved and the last paragraph was gone. And I was like, again, jokingly to myself, oh, well, this is really funny. It didn't, it didn't want that paragraph written. Uh, and then I went outside and for just to see, I put my key in the car, started my car up, drove back to the grocery store, got my groceries, which I had left there. I told them I'd be back and my credit card worked. And it was almost this weird series of events where because I had written a paragraph that this thing didn't like, it completely shut me down until that paragraph was gone and then my life kind of started back up again. Wow. Everyone's quickly asking again, is the elf okay? Is the elf okay? <laughs> it, it is all right. Uh, and I hopefully I'll have the whole thing kind of put together by the end of this year. I don't want to give an exact date just because I don't know. I'm not the only person writing this book. Like it has influence on me and, and on the book. So whenever it wants the book to be done, the book will be done. Is there an experience you haven't had yet, John, that you want to experience? Uh, I never know what I want to experience. Right. So, you know, it is a culmination of all of that. Like when people say, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you? The weirdest thing is the last weird thing that happened to me. If you would have told me when I was, you know, 16 that I was going to be dead, I wouldn't have believed you. And then I did. And then I was like, well, that's weird. And then a few years later, you know, you're laying in a coffin in a cemetery and you're thinking, well, this is weird. And then a few years later, you're sitting there at an exorcism watching a, a Vatican priest do an exorcism. And you're like, well, this is weird. Then you're talking to someone who says they're a time traveler. This is weird. And it's just, I never know what it's going to be next. But I think that's why it really is important for people to be able to say, yes, I want to have this experience. And if you would have told me when I was talking to the time traveler that someday I'd be going to see an elf, I would have not believed you. But now that's happened. And so it's just a snowball effect of, of high strangeness. And I'm waiting for the next one to hit. I could tell you, the, I have never seen an elf, but last summer, my son and I were on a father Sunday, and we were walking along the lake by our house, and it's a nice, beautiful trail, and I usually I would just let him walk, but in our area up here in the middle of nowhere, British Columbia, there's a lot of bears, and it was in September, so decided that it would probably be safer to put him in his stroller and we were out geocaching you know looking for our our geocaches that are hidden out there and ones that we'd never found and we start coming down this little hill and the lake is on our left and as we start coming down this little hill and I'm just chatting away with my son and he's chatting back he's only three years old cute little guy thank god he didn't get his looks from me and <laughs> All of a sudden, about 15, 18 feet in front of us, up from these small little trees that are standing right on the edge, and, and literally, it's a drop down to the lake. And coming out of these little trees was this, what I would describe as a flat piece of wood. Standing up, it had little arms, little legs, 
And it comes, and the funny part about it was, it was not clear. It was blurry, John. And it comes walking, takes a couple steps onto the path, stops, sees us, and takes right back off where it came. I'd never seen anything like that before. And yeah, and you, but I think this is what's interesting, right? So, like, we we as human beings, we have these weird experiences. We now openly talk about our ghost experiences to each other. We now openly talk to each other about our UFO experiences. And as I've gone around last year, as I went around and, and told this story about seeing what what I call the elf, um, I've had a uncountable amount of people pull me aside, take me down a hallway, and tell me their story about seeing a little creature out in the woods. Now, it doesn't always fit the morphology of the thing that I've seen, but all of a sudden there is still this aspect of strangeness that people are really unwilling to speak openly about. And I think that that, again, does a disservice to the overall community of people who love weirdness. We should be able to talk about the strangest things that have ever happened to us without feeling like uh, they don't happen because they do happen to people. Do you find that television has done a good thing or a bad thing for this entire field? I mean, you have a lot of experience from from being on Paranormal State to being interviewed on TSN. You've kind of run the gamut from reality show to actually news interviews. Do you think that television has benefited what we do? Uh, it's interesting because so the first thing that I ever did in television was back in the early 90s. I was a researcher for Unsolved Mysteries. And, you know, Unsolved had basically started off as a kind of murder mystery show and, and a missing persons show. And at a certain point, it switches over to hauntings and UFOs. And, and that's kind of when I was working for them. And if you would have said that there would have, there would be a dozen or more shows on television of people investigating ghosts, I, I would have thought that you were crazy, but that's where we are now. And and like I said earlier, I think there was a service that was done by allowing us to speak more openly about ghosts and UFOs. There's a ton of documentaries on Netflix and Amazon and all those. And, and so we know that it's in the public mind and we know that people have these experiences and we do talk about them openly. But I do think that the service that's done is people who are unwilling to think beyond the television shows, that this is the way it was on television, so this is the way it must be. I think that's the biggest disservice that television actually does. What about the reality shows? I realize it's great to be able to bring these topics to an entertainment and an enlightened area for the public to realize what people are actually doing in investigating this, but do you feel that in the end, they're teaching some people a lot of wrong habits. Um, I don't. I don't really think that way about it. What I what I really question, though, and I can only speak from my own personal experiences, is when I watch a, a, a television show that's a paranormal reality show. Um, I don't know how much of the audience understands how much of it is not reality. Um, that there, there is, you know, a, there are plot points that need to be hit, are beats that need to be hit that lead to the next commercial break. And sometimes if you walk into a location, and I, I know this from filming reality shows, there's nothing 
really faked about them. There's nothing faked uh, on, the, uh, on a lot of shows. But what happens is if you walk into a place and you get a great piece of data at the very, like the first 10 minutes, you can't show that on television because then the show is over. So you have to, to leave that for the end of the show, which means you have to build a narrative that drives toward that piece of information. And, and so I think it's not that you're, you're teaching people the wrong ways to do it. I, I think that a lot of shows are helping people to understand how they should start I just don't know how many people think that or understand that the shows should be a jumping off point. They should be a starting point to help them make steps toward more deeper and honest understanding of the strange stuff that's happening to them. Getting back to a question I missed from the audience, and this comes from Michael McNeil, and I know he's taking a shot at me here because he knows I hate gnomes. I can't stand these little gnomes. <laughs> they scare me, John. And I'll tell you why. When I separated from my first wife in order to move near and live near my daughter, I, I rented a basement suite. My daughter would come over to my house, and she had her own bedroom and everything. And at night, she would hear tapping on the window. And my daughter, ever since she was about a year and a half old, she's been she's been very connected. The side of the house that her room was on, where her bedroom was on, it was lit up by one of the streetlights. And my landlords actually had these ceramic garden gnomes in their garden. Well, my daughter would say, all of a sudden come running into my room, and she'd crawl in. Well, one day, she says to me, she goes, Dad, you know why I keep running into your bed at night? And I said, no. And she goes, because there's always something tapping on my window. And the other night I saw it. And she said, it was one of those garden gnomes. She goes, I saw the pointy hat and the shadow run away. And my daughter, like I said, has been seeing ghosts since she was very little. So it's something that I take very seriously because she's one of those kids who just doesn't have an overactive imagination. So ever since then, these little gnomes things, they have been absolutely scaring the crap out of me. So Michael is asking, John, do you think gnomes are nature spirits? Well, it's funny because, so one of the things that happened after I saw what I call the elf, uh, it, was, it was about a month and a half later, I was at a Starbucks actually, and there was a little boy behind me and he was talking to his imaginary friend. And I was watching it because I was interested in, in watching him have that experience and the mother looked at me and she kind of smiled nervously and, and she said, um, it is, she, she looked at me and, and pointed to her son and she said, oh, this, he's got a new imaginary friend. He just showed up. Uh, and I said, no, that's fine. I just like watching it. And I said, do you, when did he show up? And she goes, oh, he just showed up this morning. This imaginary friend just showed up this morning. Um, and his name is Kami. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Like, like a communist, like C-O-M-M-I-E. And she said, no, 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 it's, it's spelled like a little kid, I guess, would spell it. It's K-N-O-M-E. And I took my coffee and I walked away, and I realized that that's a spelling of gnome. And then I thought to myself, oh, I, like, there was a kid behind me talking to something that the little kid was calling a gnome. I've just recently seen what I'm calling an elf. Um, I wonder how that's related. And so I do think... When we say, like, what's a nature spirit? Again, that comes back to, like, our personal preferences of what we're calling things to deal with them. Um, there's a, a really interesting case in the 1960s in Wisconsin about a guy named Joe Simonton. And Joe Simonton 
said that he had been visited by a UFO. It left a huge ring in front of his house, and he had been telepathically uh, communicated with from the aliens who were these little European-looking men with black and silver hats, and they gave they telepathically told him they needed water out of his well. They gave him a silver jug. He gave them water. They gave him pancakes. Uh, you know, it's a crazy story, but, and then they flew away. And this is during the time of Project Blue Book. So the Air Force was actually called out to his place. They took pictures of this giant ring in front of his house. They did chemical analysis of the pancakes, and it turned out that the pancakes were pancakes. The only thing that was different about them is that they didn't have a sodium content to them. And the reason I tell that story is because when we look at the perspective of what we're calling things, Joe Simonton was a very uneducated man. Uh, he he had, did not finish high school. He lived by himself. Um, there's no way that he would have been reading stories about the fairy folk in England in the 15th and 16th century, which talk about little men in black silver clothing who leave fairy rings everywhere that they go, who can only drink river water out of silver vessels, and who are destroyed by salt. His UFO story perfectly aligns with 16th century stories of the fairies. And so, you know, is my elf, is your gnome, are they earth spirits? Is Bigfoot an earth spirit? Is Bigfoot a ghost? Is, uh, I mean, we don't know because we have broken it up into our, its component parts. And we've never had, like I said earlier, that discussion about what do our words mean when we're talking about this stuff. Get to another question here. This one comes from Trip. He says, John, to your knowledge, has ever, anyone ever investigated a convalescence, retirement home, where people are pretty much sent to die? Have they collected data from doctors, owners of the day, week, month, year, when things have happened, where people had started their next journey? Uh, there have been people who have done that. There's a, a really good book um, by Dr. Penny Satori in England. It's called The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. And uh, what's interesting is when you do talk to doctors, when you talk to nurses or staff that work in convalescent homes, uh, you do find that there are these really interesting and intriguing stories of what the patient is experiencing before they die, um, what happens when they die soon after. And you see what seems to be, in a lot of cases, repeatable phenomena. Now, of course, science will say it's because the brain reacts a certain way when the chemicals are dropping as the body dies. And that might be. But until science studies what happens right when a person dies, which is the hardest thing to do, right? Like, we know that people are going to die, but we don't know when they're going to die. So there are people like Dr. Penny Satori who has studied that. Um, and if you pick up that book, it's it's pretty interesting read. But I, I, it's just hard to do to get permission to, you know, if you tell someone I want to come into this, this, this elder care home because I'm, I'm studying what happens to people who are near the threshold of death, uh, you'd probably be pretty hard put to get permission to do that. I want to turn the attention to UFOs here because there are a lot of people who are seeing things in the night sky almost on a daily basis. Sometimes they are up close and personal. Other times they are little specks of light that you can't tell whether or not it's a satellite or an actual alien ship going by. What is your take on what is actually a spaceship and what could be from here? 
Well, again, it's, it's a narrative that's been crafted over the years. Um, when I would go to metaphysical conventions back in the 80s, you know, one of the one of the people that I got to speak and, and speak with was a researcher named John Keel, who did the entire Mothman. He was the person who kind of sparked the entire Mothman uh, legend. And we would talk about this idea that, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, you would have spaceships of light where it it was this huge, uh, beautiful ball of light in the sky and, and the brothers from space would come down and say hello and you have stories about Valiant Thor and all of these kind of Nordic aliens that are really beautiful looking. Uh, and then with Betty and Barney Hill in the 60s, it becomes the short grays and you all of a sudden have a nuts and bolts ship. You have ships with exhaust uh, that are made of metal and, and plated. And I think a lot of what we don't understand, um, we know that there are, are secret projects that governments work on. And so I think a lot of times people do see things that they don't readily identify in the sky, whether it's something being tested over northern Michigan or, or rural Canada up in the sky, and, and they're just not telling us about it. But there, there definitely do seem to be uh, various types of craft which don't apply to a, a natural idea. I've always tried to look at things through the most common sense logic. And so when someone says that they saw a UFO that was surrounded in lights. I always have to wonder like, why would a UFO, why would a highly advanced technological race who can traverse the vastness of the infinitude of the cosmos to find us on a planet? Why would they put lights on their ship? It's not like you're going to hit deer when you're going through space. Uh, if you can, if you can move a vessel through space and time, to come to earth, it, it seems very counterintuitive that they would put headlights on it. Uh, in the 1970s, the FAA wanted to remove landing lights from planes because it wasn't necessary anymore. Planes were landing mostly by, by radar and computer controls. Uh, but they realized after doing testing that the public was freaking out thinking, well, planes don't have lights. They're going to crash into each other. And so planes have to this day been left with lights. But that means that we have the technology now to have a, a sky full of nuts and bolts ships that aren't colored with lights. So if there's a, a, a race of people who have created technology far in advance of our own, why would they have lights on their ships? So that's probably uh, something that is a human construct uh, and is terrestrial. Uh, I think the UFOs that people see that are not lit are more interesting to me, even though that too is, you know, black ops projects and perhaps something that the government doesn't want us to know they have. I've been probably within a hundred, 150 yards of a UFO that landed. Mm -hmm. And one of the eeriest things that happened to me was it was actually turning its lights on and off on my command. And I actually have a witness to that. And one of the things that very much tripped me out was how the lights were, the, the white light was so bright, one of the lightest, brightest white lights I'd ever seen, yet I wasn't squinting. It was very, very intriguing in regards to all of that. So do you get a lot of people who have seen landings happen and have been a part of that sort of of closeness in their own personal experience? Have you had that? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, this is where, I, again, where I think we need to kind of meld the ideas together because with a lot of uh, alleged extraterrestrial encounters, people talk about there being some type of telepathic or psychic connection to the thing. Um, and if that's happening, then, you know, you've moved from ufology into psychical research. And so now you're talking about telepathy as well. And so that's where these fields can start to find their basis to be joined. But what's interesting to me when you said that you could look at it and it didn't hurt your eyes, something I talk about at my lectures all the time, mostly when I'm talking about ghosts, but it applies to everything, is the process of sight and where we are actually seeing things. Because it seems very much when you look across the room that you're looking at something across the room from you. But what's actually happening is light is bouncing off, off of that thing on the other side of the room. It's going into your eye where it's being interpreted into a visual representation inside of your brain. And that's where the sight is taking place. So when you see a ghost, it seems to be outside of you. But the construct of visualization happens within your head. There's a really interesting paper online that your listeners can look up called is your mind as big as the sky uh it was written by a scientist in england because visualization is taking place in your in your brain well if you have telepathic communication happening with your brain if sight is happening and sound is happening within your brain then where is the experience actually happening um, which is interesting when you say that you could look at that light, but it didn't hurt your eyes. It's almost as if your brain was having an interference pattern so that it wasn't hurting your eye. Because I could tell you right now, I could look up my eyes right here in my beautiful Uncle Jimbo's cabin where I am broadcasting, and mm -hmm. you look at light long enough, it makes you squint. It starts to irritate. And yet here was these this pure white light with a giant two-story blue cylinder standing in the middle of it that absolutely was perfect like i was able to just stare at it and stare at it i did and my witness with well that's me, interesting too because when you squint when you squint right so the the, the brightness light that's reflecting into your eyes is, is stressing out the nerve endings inside of your eyes which is what's making you squint and making your eyes hurt so if that's not happening, then that means that the, hap the, the, the image is happening somewhere else. It's happening in your brain and not through your eyes. So you are, and like you said, it's responding to your commands. Now, were you telling it to light up? Because yes. when I talk to people about, yeah, when I talk to people about doing EVPs with ghosts, um, I don't think from what I've looked at and what I've experienced and what I've, what I've tried to test it's never been about the words that I'm speaking. It's been about the intent of my words, the thoughts in my head before I actually speak the words, I think have more relationship to the phenomena than the actual words I'm speaking. So before you said, turn a red one on or turn a white one on, you had the idea of turn a red one on. And that is what would be understood, not the language. So what about extraterrestrials then? Do you believe there are all these different species that people claim are here from the little grays, the tall grays, the big-headed, black-eyed grays that showed up at my window during this broadcast on April 20th, 2015? Do you think of the mantids, the reptilians, the good ones, the bad ones, the humanoids? Do you believe there are all of these different species, or do you believe that this could be just perceived 
imagination of what people's minds are allowing them to see. Yes. <laughs> I think that seeing what they want to see, uh, if there are extraterrestrials and interdimensional creatures and uh, chrononauts, you know, beings that move through time, um, it's, it's always fascinating to me when people say, you know, someday we'll find in, intelligent life that's not human. Uh, we already know that there's intelligent life that's not human on this planet. I mean, we're surrounded by it daily. Dogs, cats, birds, fish. There's animals of all sorts of varieties that have different levels of intellect and different levels of awareness. And so if life does permeate the universe, if, if it's not just on this planet, then it permeates it in a variety of shapes, forms, and sizes. Now, what's always interesting to me is, you know, how could they exist? Like in our, they would have to have the same gravity as us, the same air as us, if they were to move. Whenever you see a picture of a, of a gray, they have these real thin stick-like bodies and giant heads. But obviously we know that in our gravity that wouldn't work. Their necks would break, their bones would, would, would fall in on themselves. Um, so what are we seeing? Is it a construct that was something that was built stronger? Um, how does that work? But I, I do think if life persists throughout the universe, if it exists throughout the universe, then it exists in a variety of forms. How many of them are getting to our planet is questionable. If any of them are getting to our planet is questionable. I mean, we have a huge portion of this planet that has still never been just like looked at um, underneath the oceans. Uh, we, we've gone very limited amounts down under the Earth to find out if there's anything down there. Uh, so, you know, some of these are terrestrial, could be, could be terrestrial beings that we just haven't discovered or, or perhaps have been there all along that we've just ceased to recognize. So you, do you believe then that there are beings from billions of miles into the solar system or into the universe that are making the way here? Because earlier on you said, if these ships are here, what do they need headlights for? But I also want to expand on that and say if these ships are coming and they have the technology to get here, wouldn't it have been easy for them to take us over like all the paranoid people say? Yeah, so it's, that's an interesting concept too. First of all, it, it's funny because I have to say it again, but it's, it's one of those things. Like I don't believe any of this, right? To be honest with myself, the hardest thing I have to do is I have to say and, and truly and honestly force myself to not believe that anything really kind of is. Because once you do that, you're headed down this road of knowing. And I think the easiest way to, to go down the road of knowing is, is saying that you don't understand and you don't believe. I think that that leads you to more questions. Now, when it comes to what you're talking about, I've always had this idea that if you are highly technologically advanced, if you do traverse space and time, if you do have that technology, which is just mind-blowing, what would be to us magic, the, you know, the old saying, any, uh, any technology sufficiently advanced is indiscernible from magic. If you have that technology, you've probably also done away with things like fear, greed, the motivators that drive war and warlike races, um, that that would be gone. And you may be perceived at a different level than a physical being. You might be perceived as what we call commonly ghosts uh, or beings of light or angels. Uh, I don't think that 
they would necessarily want to take us over. Um, I, I, sometimes at my lectures, I'll speak about the fact that um, you've never driven uh, across the country to show someone a dog. Um, it's just not fascinating. You know, dogs there. Uh, it's we all know that dogs are there, and I, and I feel like that's kind of the way that an advanced race would feel about us. They know we're here. Uh, we're not really that intelligent in comparison to them. So what's the real point in, in them doing anything with us? I mean, we know that ants and beetles and spiders have a certain amount of intelligence, but none of us has ever sat down to do math problems with them because we know that they won't understand our math problems. And so we don't even talk to them. Uh, we, we don't explain spelling to cats and dogs. Uh, and they perceive the universe in a much different way than we do. Dogs, you know, there's an old saying, there's, there's no rainbows for dogs. Dogs are limited by their biology in their experience of reality. So they live in a, in a completely different world, even though it's similarly shared with us, but they experience it in a much different way. So again, if there are these creatures that are biologically different than us, technologically different from us, it's very likely that we're not experiencing each other in the same way. So what do you think then, John, about all of these experiences, abductions, contact that people are having? People saying that they're getting these wonderful spiritual downloads of what life is supposed to be like, or people having the absolute nightmare of being raped or having pregnancy tests for women and you know, their their ovaries have been damaged in some sort of way. We've seen it all happen. Yeah, I, and this is where it's, it, it is for us, right? Like, we have to be able to say that it's all on the table, that some people are being abducted, some people are getting downloads from a larger galactic mind, some people are having positive experiences, some people are having negative experiences, um, if we're going to say that one of them is happening, we have to allow for the fact that they all might, might be happening. Um, and if they are, then we should be looking at all of the experiences and not just one. You know, you'll have a, a certain doctors in the UFO field who will say, you know, every abduction is horrific and terrible. And yet you have decades of contactees who have done nothing but say that it's an illumination process and that they've become richer and smarter for it. Um, so you have to be willing to be open to the ideas that what you're thinking about may have contrary happenings to go along with it. Do you think then that there are both benevolent and malevolent species visiting earth, or do you think maybe the more malevolent side could be some sort of mind control out of MK Ultra. So uh, that comes back to the, uh, the the perspective-based reality that we live in. I tell a story during my lectures of some people who said that they had a demon in their house. And so when I went to their house, I was sitting in their living room, and while I was sitting in their living room, coffee cups were thrown against the wall, a screen door was kicked out, I was bitten and I was scratched, and then I went home because their children were horrible. All of that stuff had happened because of their children. Their children were nightmarish, but their children weren't evil. Their children weren't being bad. Their children were trying to get someone to listen to them, to talk to them, to communicate with them. 
And if I wouldn't have been able to see the children, I would have thought that something horrible was happening in the house. But that's my perspective. Uh, there are some people, when I talk about my death experience, I went to a place of, of darkness and void where my, it's hard, difficult to talk about, but where my consciousness was just kind of inside of eternity forever in a, in a dark place. And people always say, well, was it hell? No one ever says, was it heaven? Because there's this idea of darkness and infinity that is nightmarish to people. But that's purely their perspective base. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. It, it kept me uh, on the straight and narrow for the rest of my life up until this point. Uh, so it was actually a great thing that in the moment seemed like a horrible thing. Do you still get nightmares about that? Oh, for sure, of course. Uh, whenever, and I think this is probably fairly true from all of the experiencers of uh, all the near-death experiencers I've talked to, there's a, a certain amount of P PTSD that happens for the rest of your life from it. So, um, and before that, I, I was always a, a night terror kid, whether it be because I watched too many horror movies or comic books, but I've always had nightmares. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just part of my experience. It's part of what makes me love waking up every day. Do you feel that because you experience that, that you're able to see a little bit more than other researchers are able to view or to have more an unbiased viewpoint of what people are going through, John? So that is an interesting aspect to me, too, because there have been a lot of researchers and, and scientists, you know, accredited mainstream scientists who I've talked to who said, oh, you know, you, you didn't really die. You were only down for, you know, two and a half to three minutes when they shocked you back. And so you're not really dead. And uh, one of the things that happens when you die is you become, in, at least in my case, you become fairly well versed on all of the information of what happens to you when you die. And, and I've always argued it's perspective and learn based, right? So if I didn't really die and it's not that big of a deal. I've asked these scientists and these people who have talked to me, I've said, just have them go in and stop your heart for two or three minutes so that you can have this experience as well. Well, they don't want to do that, obviously, right? Um, so I do think it allows me to have a, a wider opinion on the experience. But again, as time goes by, as I misremember things, as I know that my brain is kind of deteriorating the experience, I doubt what happens to me. Um, but it, it does act as a catalyst to kind of drive me forward to know that I was in this in-between place um, between being a physical being and between being a non-physical being. And so that helps. I don't think it makes me any more sensitive to ghosts or psychic phenomena. Uh, in some cases, I think it actually hinders some of the experiences because there's a part of me that is remote and cut off because I don't like to revisit it because it does bring up pretty overwhelming anxiety. Amber is asking a question here. She says, John, what is the most intriguing piece of information you have obtained through the Freedom of Information Act? Uh, it's always fun. I think the, <laughs> the most intriguing piece of information was um, many, many years ago, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, uh, all of us were working he was specifically the researcher for the Malcolm X film and for Spike Lee's Malcolm X film. And at a certain point, we all filed Freedom of Information Act requests on ourselves. 
to see if the government had anything about us. And um, there's a period of time that goes by, and eventually you get the paperwork back. And when we got our paperwork back, um, you get surveillance photographs of yourself. That's very strange to see that someone was taking your picture from the parking lot while you were in a Denny's drinking coffee. Um, but what's really interesting is to get a piece of paper from the government saying, we have more files on you, but you don't have the security clearance to see them. That's super intriguing to me. What do you have about me? What does the government have about me that I'm not allowed to see that they have? Uh, so that's the most intriguing piece of information. But I had a really, uh, one of the biggest things that I ever did through FOIA uh, before it was changed, because it did change with the Patriot Act, and it's been changed a few times since then, since 2001. So it's a little bit more difficult to, to file Freedom of Information Act requests. But in 1953, there was a UFO um, sighting over Lake Superior in Michigan, and an aircraft had gone out. The Air Force sent an aircraft after it. Uh, the aircraft never came back. The UFO disappeared off the radar screens. There was no wreckage ever found. And for years, from 1953 up until 1997 or 98, uh, the government would only release about 15 pages of documents on what's called the Kinross case. And through a series of FOIA requests and kind of beating on the doors of different departments inside of the government, uh, we got 500 pages released about Ken Ross, which led to the widow and children getting back benefits. And it didn't really prove that there was a UFO, but at least it, it kind of added information that was never there about Ken Ross, at least up until 1999. Do you believe all these stories that these UFOs have been flying over nuclear missile sites in the United States, in Russia, and elsewhere, and actually shutting them down? It's interesting. We've had that happen in Michigan. Um, at Selfridge Space, it happened um, oh, right outside Selfridge. Uh, a couple near our atomic power plant in Monroe, Michigan. I don't know if that would fall into the category. I know that people see you what they call UFOs in the sky. But again, it goes back to what we're talking about, uh, the perceived reality of that. I mean, I would almost think that that's something that other nation states would do, that it's things that our enemies might, the, the enemies of the United States might want to do. Uh, but that idea, you know, which was so strong in the 1940s and 50s of, of the brothers from outer space telling us to not mess around with atomic power, to not have atomic power plants, I still think permeates uh, modern society because people do have an inherent fear of, of that. And so I think that's kind of, if it is happening, there's no explanation for it. If it's not happening, I can understand why. There's, there's a, an inbred fear of, of a technological disaster like that. Do you think that maybe permeates from this whole conspiracy theory back in the early 50s that President Eisenhower actually traded or made a deal in the Grenada Treaty, I believe? It's called for humans for alien technology. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, so when you have things like Eisenhower being scurried away on a ship to meet aliens or going to an Air Force base to, to make contact and sign treaties with aliens to exchange people for 
technology. That's interesting, but again, I don't think if we're dealing with highly evolved uh, off-world intelligences, I don't know why they would specifically only go to one country. I don't know why they would pick the United States, uh, how they would think that one country has dominion over the entire Earth if they knew anything about us. Uh, so I do think that a lot of the times with conspiracies, especially government conspiracies, I think that it's very easy to throw red herrings at people uh, for the government to do that, to say, oh, well, this is what it is and isn't. And, and that'll get people separated off on wild tangents. Uh, so we know that this information campaigns existed all throughout the 90s. Uh, with UFOs. And I don't think that that's ever not been true. I think that as long as the government has been doing secret projects, they've been making up ways to keep people from knowing about those secret projects. Do you think we gained any special or specific technology back then and throughout the years that has been used and maybe forwarded into mainstream society today? There's that popular idea, right? Like, so, you know, in 1947, you have, you allegedly have Roswell, and then all of a sudden we go from crystal radios to transistors overnight, and all of a sudden the technology is blinding, which leads up to computers in this modern day and age. But if you really sit down and look at how technology works, I mean, it doesn't really, you can't make a leap in a month from no technology or limited technology. A lot of people feel that fiber optics came from right. spacecraft. A lot of people feel that the design of the new computer, bringing everything down into the size it is today, came from alien technology. How to transmit cellular phones came from that. Do you buy that, or do you think that we're just smart enough that it was eventually going to happen? Yeah, I think that, you know... Evolution has a, a speed to it, especially with technology, uh, the, the evolution of technology. Uh, we were well on the road to cell phones with the invention of radio at the turn of the century, and it took 117 years to get us to cell phones, uh, which is you know, by no means overnight. It's 117 years of thousands upon thousands of scientists testing and uh, struggling to make something work. You know, if you, and so the, the argument, the, the counter argument is always, well, it did take 117 years and that is just a blip on the radar. Uh, it was actually very fast to go from the Wright brothers first flying to 1969 going to the moon. Um, but we know that technology uh, is built upon its predecessors. And so it naturally increases speed as we determine how to take a three and a half inch floppy drive and turn it into a flash drive or a thumb drive to turn it into a micro SD card. Like this is just the process of, of shrinking things down. And, and we saw that actually happen in Japan after World War Two, you know, in, in World War Two, uh, after the end, Japan wasn't allowed to build any military equipment, they weren't allowed to uh, build tanks and planes. And so what they did was they specialized in toys. And before you knew it, within five or six years, they had these tiny little wind-up mechanical cars that still to this day are really amazing when you look at them. But it's if you focus your interest and you focus your ideas and you put your best minds at something, you, you will figure it out. 
I don't think we need the intervention of aliens to help. We got about 90 seconds before we got to go to break. I'm going to squeeze in one more question from our audience. Catherine believe, or is asking, do you believe, John, in the Battle of Los Angeles, or do you think it was staged? Uh, I think that the Battle of Los Angeles was probably a foreign country, and there it got out of control. They didn't know how to report it. Uh, I do think that there was probably something in the air. It could have even been, I've, I've, I've heard and talked to theorists who think that it was even someone in the United States, a, a traitorous uh, group of people inside the United States trying to attack Los Angeles. And that's why it's kind of obscured and, and not understood very well, because the government didn't want to admit that there were people inside of the government that were rebelling against itself. And on that note, John, I'm going to get you to hold on for our final break of the night. John is going the distance tonight on Spaced Out Radio, so we got one more hour with Mr. Tenney. Make sure you check out his website, weirdlectures.com. Hey, if you want to check out patreon.com, you can become a Spaced Out Radio patron for as low as $1 a month. I highly suggest you check that out. You can also go to our website. we got a plethora of features there for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club and our brand new news section called The Encounter Online. We got some great articles on there, both from around the world, and we are building a team of writers and journalists now to provide you the best in paranormal news that is out there. I highly suggest you check it out. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. And if you want to chat with me during the show, I'm all over the chat rooms. Our new listeners, thank you, John, for bringing them in, are like, how's he do it? I'm all over the place, four chat rooms, and on Twitter at hashtag Spaced Out Radio. So make sure you check us out, because I am watching you, my Spaced Out Radio pretties. We're going to be right back, right after this break. So you just sit tight, and I'll be right back. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines, your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with Euphorcop. On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Witkowski's Strange Days. 
Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit. And expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top-quality paranormal stories from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies, you won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter, online, only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio, or our website including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? 
strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. Uh, Mr. Bumblefoot bringing us right back in to Space Out Radio with a little don't know who to pray to anymore. Gotta love Mr. Bumblefoot, our official music of this show. Tomorrow night, we're getting heavy into the cryptid world. J.C. Johnson and friends are going to be joining us 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at SpacedOutRadio.com, where we are going to get into everything from... Mothman to Bigfoot, Chupacabras to Dogman. It's going to be an interesting show indeed. I highly hope you tune us in, especially those listening for the the very first time. Thank you so much for being with us. We want to welcome in our terrestrial stations tonight, the United Public Radio Network, live on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We're also live in noon in Georgia on WQEE 99, Rock the Key. Thank you, Ryan, for bringing us aboard in the home of the Walking Dead. Thank you so much. We're also live in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio and on Revolution Radio. Remember, the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Gadzookery. Gadzookery is your password. Make sure you use it wisely, space travelers, because Bill sets the password each and every night right here on the mighty SOR. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to communicate with me live during the show, because I like to communicate with you guys as well. You can give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows on iTunes, RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, and on Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you. You can check up on the latest paranormal news by clicking on the Encounter Online. You can join the SOR Space Travelers Club and much more. Don't forget to head over to Patreon.com where you can become a Spaced Out Radio patron for as low as $1 a month. Paula did yesterday. We're looking for you to do it as well. John Tenney is our guest tonight. 
WeirdLectures.com is his website. He is the man, the myth, and the legend when it comes to describing all things paranormal from a beautifully skeptic point of view. John, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. I was laughing at uh, your promos because I listen to a lot of old-time radio. Yes. And I, I, I love the fact that, you know, back in the 1930s, the show would end or begin with them saying, uh, we'll see you next Tuesday. Read about us in your Sunday paper. And that was all the information they had to give for people to get in contact with the show. It's a different world now. It totally is. And, and you know what? I, I can honestly say it's a mouthful. It really is. Like, thank God I, I have it memorized now because I used to have to script it all. But now it's just, you know, saying it three, four times a night and going on over it. Man, you know, it's hard. And I'll explain it. I have no problem explaining it. You know, we don't have the biggest budget. You know, right. not, not to say we're cheap or anything, but we're still brand new. We're still building. And when you have to rely so heavily on all of this stuff in order to get the message out there, hoping that just that one special person with the right set of ears and the right connections hears the show, you know, that's what you have to do. Because we want to, you know, being a former terrestrial guy, doing all this online stuff, I got I to gotta tell you, man, it's annoying. It's very annoying. But it is really amazing when you think about it, right? Like I used it to be is. in bands back in the '80s as well, and and if I wanted to, if I wanted people to hear my music, I either played at a club where there were 35 people, or I would pay a thousand dollars to get 500 records pressed, and then only 500 people would hear it. Now I can record a song in my living room, put it on Facebook, and 5,000 people will hear it within the next 10 minutes. Yeah, and that's the incredible part about it. But you know, when you're in a situation like we are, you have to do it. Because, like I said, all yeah. it takes is that one special set of ears to hopefully catch that break. Absolutely. You know, eventually, I would love to see a Spaced Out Radio channel on Sirius XM. But that might be a few years down the road yet. We'll just continue. You never on. know. Never know. We live in a world of UFOs, Bigfoot, and ghosts, so you never know. Exactly. Now, hopefully they take us seriously along those lines. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, right before the break, we were talking a lot about UFOs. But one of the things that you mentioned off the top of the show that I would love to get into in a few moments is time travelers. But before we do that, last night I had Greg Bishop on the show, and we were talking a little bit about Tom DeLonge, the Blink-182 singer who is now heavily involved in trying to figure out the whole UFO phenomena. What do you think about that? I mean, again, we have, there's a general interest inside everybody, most people, uh, about something strange, whether, you know, some people glance in one of the three major directions of Bigfoot Ghosts or UFOs. But, you know, there's, there's interest in everyone. It's always interesting to me to see someone who has a certain amount of fame uh, use that to promote their ideas. And then you really have to wonder, like, I really have to wonder, I know that, you know, Tom DeLonge says that he's been interested for a long time but I don't know exactly what that means and what his level of interest actually is. It was just announced this week that Rob Lowe and his sons are going to be having a paranormal reality show. And, you know, there is, again, with entertainment, there's this crafting of, of a narrative of people's backstories. I, I think that a lot of people would be shocked to find out that, you know, a lot of the people who are on television, yes, they've had interests in it, but, 
you know, they didn't start really researching it until they got on television. And so that always makes me question what is in it. Are they in it for the show? Are they in it for the notoriety? Or are they really in it to, to try and help move the debate and the conversation along? Do you think that he is actually going to be able to bring something new to the table? Because the one thing that I have noticed, and I've been efforting to try and get him on the show, and it hasn't been very much luck. He seems pretty tied to George Knapp, and why wouldn't he, considering George is a pretty reliable reporter when it comes to these types of affairs. Do you believe that he is heading down the the edge of the rabbit hole where he's going to break something new or do you think that he's just getting the information from these so-called insiders that he has that is just research that we already know but they're maybe confirming uh it's always interesting when someone is getting research from someone that's an insider because for your, a lot of your listeners who aren't very into the ufo phenomena uh, I spoke kind of earlier about what happened in the 90s. And in the 90s, we had a lot of insiders leaking information. And it took, you know, six years for us to uncover that they were disinformation agents. And to this day now, 10 years after that, 15 years after that event, there are still books being written about their information, which we know isn't true. So we know that these disinformation campaigns exist. And we know that the people who spread disinformation, one of the reasons that it works is because they don't know that they're part of the disinformation campaign. So it, it is somewhat interesting to me when someone will only pick one venue or one radio show to talk about their ideas. Uh, I've always been one of those people who, no matter how large or small a radio show or a podcast or a convention or, or an event is, I like to go because it's not about me spreading information. It's about me gathering information. And the only way I can do that is, is, is to go everywhere and try and do everything. And so when people put up their own roadblocks as to what they're going to do, that, that makes me question their motives. So in the end, what do you think Tom's motives are? Have you ever had a chance to speak uh, with him? I haven't. Um, it's, uh, I have a friend that uh, I think she interviewed him for her website, but uh, I've never spoke to him. And it, it did come fairly out of left field a few years ago when he started talking about his interest in it. So, uh, I mean, I can't speak to his motivations. If he thinks that he has information, then give it. Uh, it's always been fascinating to me when people wait to give out information that always makes me speculate that something's going on uh, that's not really on the up and up. If, if I had any information to give to people that would disclose uh, UFO contacts or ghosts or Bigfoot existence, uh, I would give it immediately. But that's always made me question people's motives, if that they don't want to do it right away. Um, and, and maybe he's just being careful. I've been careful with stuff. I've, I'm being careful with my elf story just because the elf is involved uh, and maybe he is somehow involved with extraterrestrials, but I guess we won't know until he reveals all. So just to get back to the elf for a second here, are you in constant communication with him? <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird. It's always around. It's almost as if uh, the, the, the question that you ask is kind of like saying, uh, 
are you are you always sad? I guess I've, I've never really put it into words, but the uh, ability for it to always be around is always around, but it's not always around. If that makes any sense. You know, one of my booking coordinators, Corey, she lives just a few miles from me. And a couple years ago, and, and I'd like to get your take on this. A couple years ago, she was actually heading downstairs into her laundry room, had a handful of laundry, and she's walking into her room, and all of a sudden, and her light, and her light is on in her laundry room, nothing strange, and all of a sudden, coming out of her laundry room, right in the doorway, she runs into this little Ewok-type creature. And they both kind of screamed and stunned. And the Ewok turned around, ran back into the room, and disappeared. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of a story or a creature like that? I mean, that's very similar to my story. Interesting. Yeah, she's never seen it again. But she would like to. I know that. She said it was cute. Didn't feel any fear or anything. They speak to him, so his story that he told me was that, you know, they have a language, but he's unable to learn it. So they do. They speak to him telepathically. And they have to choose the words that are in his vocabulary. And he's asked them what they are. Like, what are you? And the only word that they can find inside of his head that fits is the word whimsy. And I think that's interesting, too, because, again, it's not good. It's not bad. It's just um, whimsy. It's just kind of good-natured nonsense. And I think that's interesting, too, that that plays into it. Because if you look historically back at stories from the First Nations people and the, the, the Aboriginal Americans of this land, uh, they always had stories about trickster spirits. And so you have a kind of melding of that ancient American folklore with what I seem to be experiencing now. I know up in my area, there is a population of Bigfoot. We have actually, my buddies and I, we've gone out looking and searching. We've actually found two different size prints within 150 feet of each other. Bigfoot, to a lot of people, is a gigantopithecus. It is maybe part of the Nephilim, maybe leftover North American great ape connected to this area from when we were all just one giant continent And then there's the people who believe it's alien. There's people who believe it's spiritual. A lot of the First Nations in my area believe that it is a shapeshifter. What's your take on Bigfoot? Yeah, so, again, the the kind of deep thinking, sometimes I'm shocked by the limiting that people have put on their own thoughts about stuff. So when I speak about Bigfoot, I'm speaking about a a group of Bigfoot. uh, so a, a large population, maybe 20 or 30,000, uh, in Michigan, there's, and, and when people, when I say that many and people are like, really that many, I, I point out the fact that I live in Michigan. We have about 4 million deer just in Michigan. 
So, you know, if you had 20,000 deer in Michigan, it's already hard to see deer in Michigan unless you live in a rural area, then you might see them every single day, but that's because there's millions of them. Uh, if there's only 20,000 of a Bigfoot, of, of an actual creature, a physical flesh and blood creature, and there's only 20,000 of them spread across the world, uh, you're probably not going to see them, especially if they're trying to stay away from us, if they bury their dead, if they're migratory, all of that plays into it as well. Um, but then you have a secondary, which is an, an earth spirit that might be large. Uh, a third possibility is that it's extraterrestrial. A fourth possibility is that you're seeing the ghost of ancient man in the forest. Um, so there are these, this wide ranging scope of, of what people say are Bigfoot. I just did, I heard you saying uh, in the last break, your next guest that you're having tomorrow, you're going to talk a little bit about Dogman. In Michigan and in Wisconsin, we have sightings of Dogman. I just did the first Dogman Symposium in Ohio last year. And one of the things that I ask about is, you know, if you saw a big upright furry creature, uh, if you were looking for Dogman, you might call it Dogman. If you weren't looking for Dogman, you might call it Sasquatch. If you didn't believe in Sasquatch or Dogman, you would call it a bear. Because, again, it's what you're thinking about when you see it. You don't expect to see a dog standing upright on its hind legs. And so it can't be a dog. But for some people, that would be Sasquatch. I, I spoke to someone recently at an event, and I, I was talking about all of this. And before I got as far as I've just now spoken, this woman looked at me and said, so there's more than one Bigfoot. She's grown up her entire life thinking about Bigfoot, and she's only ever thought it being a single Bigfoot on the whole planet. And that is really curious to me, too. How would you not imagine that there's more than just one? Uh, you know, she said to me, well, isn't there only one? Isn't it the one that they saw, you know, they, that they got the footage of? So it's, it's curious how deep people sometimes don't think about these experiences because we don't really know what any of it is. And so that opens up the possibility, not the probability, but the possibility that it could be anything. Do you believe then that because First Nations have had such a long history with this creature, that their opinion of what Bigfoot could be is probably more accurate than what I like to call the Caucasian Christian scientific explanation that there is no way this creature has any supernatural ability. I think that one... One possibility is just as likely as any other possibility. Um, the fact that the First Nations people and the, Na and the Native Americans who lived here were seeing an Earth spirit. Uh, you know, my friends Greg and Dana, who run the Traveling Museum of the Weird and the Occult, they talk about the fact that they think that Bigfoot is a ghost. Uh, one of the things that we don't talk about because of the separation of the fields is that many people who see Bigfoot see a bright green flash. Uh, usually before or directly after they see Bigfoot. But because you see this giant creature, that takes precedence when you tell the story, and over time you forget that you saw those flashes of light. Now, do those flashes of light in some way correlate with the sighting of Bigfoot? How? Is it an opening between realities that the creature is coming into and going out of? Is it a beaming down process from an alien spaceship? Is it what happens when a part of your brain is opened to a larger spiritual reality. Um, 
this is these are the kind of conversations that we should be having instead of saying there's only one type of Bigfoot, it's a giant ape, the end. And and that's the only possibility of it. Because again, it comes down to if someone says that and they're 100% sure that that's the only way it is, that's a very, very uh, shaky edge to walk. When you say you know it 100%, there's only Bigfoot as a physical creature, you're, you're leaving out the vastness uh, of strangeness that surrounds us in our everyday reality. And, you know, we've talked about that on our show numerous times, and I've actually questioned a few Bigfoot researchers who say they don't believe in all that spiritual shape-shifting hype. And I've now started to come back at them and say, how do you know? Because you don't have the proof. So basically what you're trying to do is put your opinion and use that as scientific fact. That is, to, to me, absolute one way of never being able to find out what this creature is if you're already eliminating possibilities without even scientifically deciding whether or not it is real. For sure. And, you know, it's, it comes back to that kind of confirmation bias, right? So if you talk to most research scientists, they'll tell you that when they do any kind of clinical testing, over extended periods of time to get a good sampling rate and, and, and good collection of, of data. Um, they'll tell you that there are, are three possibilities. There's yes, there's no, and then there's an, an X. There's, a, there's a, some, a random chance factor that happens. And unfortunately for us, we live in a world where scientific grants and money um, are thrown at people to find out why yes or why no. And that random chance, that, that one time that it didn't work, there's no money in researching that. That's the one time that I'm really interested in it. You know, if you know it's going to either work or not work, that's fine. But when it does something you didn't expect it to do, that's what I want you to research. Do you think the government then, John, is covering up Bigfoot? Do you think they know about it? Uh, I'm sure somewhere along the line, if Bigfoot is real and a physical creature, that there is one somewhere that somebody has. Uh, I don't know if it's the government I, or, or just the wealthy. Uh, I, I feel like people who have inordinate amounts of wealth love to hoard things and know that they're the ones that have it without sharing it with anyone. Uh, just from the, the few overtly wealthy people that I've known who have great paintings and, and great pieces of art in their house that they don't allow people to see. Um, there seems to be that mentality with people of great wealth and import that they love to have it uh, and not reveal even that they have it, or sometimes they can't reveal that they have it because it's stolen or it was taken from somewhere or it caused a major difficulty taking it or someone died because they took it. So if it's out there, I'm sure that someone, someone on the planet has real proof of it. I'll tell you a story why I asked that. One of my good friends and our researcher with the SOR Spacewire, or pardon me, the Sightlines Report, Mike Schmidt, he's a good friend of mine here in my town. He's had a few UFO experiences. Bigfoot was new to him until he found the 17-inch print by 8 inches. And one day, he's an avid outdoorsman, avid hunter, and so one day, 
I think this would have been October of last year. He's driving around some of the logging roads and trails that are in the backwoods of our area. And he gets pulled over by a conservation officer that he chats with quite a bit. So the conservation officer, a young guy, says, hey, Mike, what's going on? How you been? And Mike's like, oh, no, too bad. He goes, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm looking for footprints. And the conservation officer says, what kind? And Mike sheepishly said, Sasquatch. Because he was a little embarrassed, didn't know how the conservation officer would react. No laughter. They ended up chatting for 30 minutes. Conservation officer says to him, and and I'm getting this second hand from Mike, and he could explain it better, but long story short, we're not allowed to talk about that stuff. I've seen some very weird and strange things in these forests, and basically if I want to keep my job, i got to keep my mouth shut. Now to me, that's very telling. Why is a conservation officer not allowed to talk about the strangeness of what's happening in your forest. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the kind of normalizing of silence is something that we've seen in all of the fields of strangeness. Airline pilots aren't allowed to talk about seeing UFOs or they have to go under psych valves. They can lose their credentials to fly planes. Police officers are often told not to not to talk about UFO encounters or, or anything strange or ghosty. Uh, there was a case that I was dealing with someone in, in the early 2000, I believe, called me and asked if I had known about this UFO sighting that the police were chasing in northern Michigan. And since I'm in southern Michigan, I said no. I wrote a Freedom of Information Act request to, it was in Traverse City, Michigan, I sent a freedom of information request to the police department. They didn't. They said they didn't have anything. That it was um, a, a comet that somebody had seen and reported it to the police. And maybe three weeks later, in the mail, uh, anonymously, someone who I would guess worked at the police dispatch sent me a recording from the the actual police dispatch office. Uh, and it's 45 minutes of probably a dozen police officers chasing a UFO around. Uh, when I called back to the offices, and because I could hear their names and their designations, their numbers, their car numbers, and stuff like that, and started asking, none of the police officers would talk to me. They were all interested in how I got the tape, but none of them would talk to me. And so there is a wall of silence a lot of times in professions where these things are happening, but the professionals aren't allowed to talk about them. Is it more pride, or is it actually directive that they're not allowed to talk about it? I think a lot of it is directive. Uh, We know from files that have been released in some instances. In the 1970s, there was um, a directive that went out to the three major networks that told them it would be best for the networks and their sponsors if they were going to do any type of UFO, unidentified flying object, or flying saucer story, to never interview anyone with more than a high school education. Uh, and then, then throughout the 1970s and early 80s, the only people you ever saw on television were people with a high school education or less who had reported a UFO, which meant that by the 90s, there was this trope that the only people who saw UFOs were uneducated people. And that was a directive that was put out, we know now, because the documents have been released and declassified. Uh, we know that there are some police officers who are told by, you know, that are directed to not talk about this stuff. Or, like I said, 
have to undergo psych evals. They can have their licenses and credentials revoked. Um, so we're up against that wall as well. Couple questions from our audience here. Brand new listener at Spaced Out Radio on Twitter. Cynthia is asking, why do people assume space aliens are more intelligent? Is it because they drive around space? Well, so do we. Yeah, so if they are coming here from a different planet, um, then they're traversing larger distances than we are. I mean, we we fly around space too. We can only send little robots to you know, Mars is pretty much as far out as we get, or we can launch something like Voyager into deep space, which will eventually just die, but it's basically just shooting a rock into space uh, and we can get to the moon. But the idea is if they are, are actually trend, if they're coming from another planet in a perhaps different solar system or a different galaxy, even that they would have to have figured out faster than light travel, um, all of the technology that we can't yet figure out, which means that they probably have been around longer than us, which probably means that they're more intelligent than us. If they're extraterrestrial, if they're not ultra terrestrials coming from a different dimension, or if they're not some type of multi-terrestrial where they live on earth and Mars and somewhere in the solar system hidden from us. This question also comes from Twitter at hashtag spaced out radio from Jake He's saying, John, have there ever been any recorded unicorn sightings? Because a lot of people love their unicorns. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because <laughs> I actually had this discussion years ago with my nephew when he kind of got into unicorns. He's 17 now, but this was, you know, 10 years ago when he was asking me about unicorns. And, um, you know, there's arguments about whether or not people have actually ever seen unicorns, if they were ac ever actually real. I'm belong to the camp uh the creation of unicorns probably come from the first stories that we really have of unicorns uh start after uh the last kind of egyptian dynasties when you had cultures going into egypt and looking at the reliefs on the walls which are all uh carved in silhouette and on the side and there was a ox that was drawn on those Egyptian walls around the hieroglyphs. And obviously, since it's being drawn in profile, you don't draw two horns, you draw one. And, and so that became Unicron, that became the one horns. And somehow over time, that developed into unicorns. Uh, we know that, you know, in the medieval times, when people, when the stories of unicorns were created, you, you actually did have some uh, untrustworthy sailors who were taking narwhal horns and bringing them back to northern europe and, and selling them as unicorn horns because that's how it looked in the paintings but i don't think there have been any uh modern day sightings of unicorns very interesting and one more question from our audience this is coming from our chat room at spacedoutradio.com from just me what is your favorite thing to research john or collect data or information on so i like i do love what we call ghosts what we what we all i am fascinated and always shall be fascinated by the experience of being alive and what happens when i biologically will die uh there was a house that i investigated this 
in Hamtramck, Michigan for five years, just going there every single day, keeping track of all of the environmental factors, trying to see if I could figure out when there would be a repeated haunting, if, ha- if hauntings were repeated, if uh, the data could be collected on that. And so I am always fascinated with the amount of data that you can gather when you do start to do research, especially on, on ghosts. There are other people who have spent tons and tons of time, friends of mine who, who do the same thing with UFOs and Bigfoot. Um, but I, I do love to collect it and see how it applies to the other fields. I do love everything weird. You know, I had the chance 20 years ago to call my business UFO lectures or ghost lectures or Bigfoot lectures. And I chose to call it weird lectures because I love anything weird. Um, but there will always be something about, about fantasy, the philosophy of ghosts, uh, and the paranormal, if that's what you want to call it, uh, dealing with life after death. And, and maybe that's just due to the fact that, uh, I'm a living dead person and a future ghost. Yeah. I plan on haunting a few people when my time's up. Uh, I got a whole list of them, man. A whole list of them. John, I don't usually allow a lot of humorous questions, but this one's funny. Trip, who is a is a valued and and a regular listener here on the show. He's our chat room bartender. Sure. Except except the drinks never seem to get to me. It bothers me. He says do off, <laughs> I gotta try and say this with a, a straight face. Do off planeters travel with family? And if so, what do they do with the mother in law? <laughs> um, <laughs> you're asking the wrong person. I'm a 47 year old man who's not married, who doesn't have any children. I don't have to deal with mother in laws. Uh, so I, this is completely outside my realm of knowledge. Congratulations. I have no answer for that. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. My former mother-in-law is still pissed off a house landed on her sister. So we'll just leave that <laughs> one at that. We, no, we might not know. We might be visited. All these visitors from space might be the mother-in-laws that are sent away from home. Absolutely. I think that is a very, very good response. Very good response. So if you're having a bad experience from your aliens... Make sure you don't piss off your mother-in-law is what John is trying to say. (laughs) On a more serious note, John, I love the topic of time travel. And I'd like to spend some time on this. Everybody who is read up on this field knows about John Teeter. And we've heard other stories from other people who have said they've been a part of the space secret space program, that there is time travel. Andrew Bashago has come out, a famous Seattle lawyer, who says he was a child chrononaut traveling through time, forwards and backwards. Do you think that we have the technology right now for time travel? So, time travel is, obviously, everything we're dealing with is, whether, no matter what subject we're talking about, is wonky. But time gets really crazy, right? So we seem to only experience it in a forward motion. We are all time travelers. We're all constantly moving into the future. Uh, the problem is, is backwards motion. Uh, so when I talk about collecting data, that seems to combine all of the fields together. One of the stories that I tell 
uh, at my lectures is I was working with a client. She had walked into her grandmother's house. No one was living in there at the time. No one had lived there for about 10 years. Uh, she went just to check up, make sure all the windows and doors were locked. And when she walked into the, the kind of sitting room of her grandmother's house, she saw a woman and two girls. She screamed and they disappeared. She immediately went home. She called her mom. She asked if grandma's house was ever haunted. Her mom said, no, there's no ghost. You're just a crazy person. Uh, a few days later, her aunt called her and said, grandma's house isn't haunted. But when your mother and I were little girls, we were with your grandma in the sitting room, and this woman walked in and screamed at us and then vanished in front of us. So you have this ghost happening, which actually seems to be a time slip. The, the, the aunt, the mother, and the grandmother experienced the granddaughter-daughter from the future, while the, the daughter in the present saw them in the past. So something happened there in that moment where, where time glitched. And I think that that probably happens a lot. It's just whether or not we're able to control it. And if you talk to people who I have a friend who works at CERN and one of her little hobbies is, is talking about time travel. And she's convinced that, you know, if it was possible, all you would be doing is splintering off the original, an original timeline and creating a separate timeline and a separate reality. Uh, so every time you go back in time, it would split at that moment from the time that you originally broke off of to create a new timeline. You could never eventually get back to your normal timeline because by that time there would be an infinite amount of branches and you'd never be able to find the one that was exactly yours. You might find one that's kind of close. Uh, the time traveler I, I spoke to back in the early 2000s said that time travel was possible through the government, but the way that it works is it's your consciousness. It can only be put inside of your body, so you can only travel backwards and forwards throughout your life. So you're limited in the amount of time that you can travel by how long you actually live. Uh, but your six-year-old body can contain the consciousness of whenever it is you started traveling time. So if the government is, starts you at 40, they could send you back to six years old, and your six-year-old body would have a 40-year-old consciousness in you. And that makes for all sorts of crazy problems, too, because now you have a six-year-old who seems to be more intelligent, uh, but the brain isn't formed to hold the consciousness properly. So even though that child might have a 40 year old's consciousness inside of them, their brain isn't formed for some of the information that a 40 year old brain would be able to handle. Does any of that make any sense? No, absolutely. It does, but, but it still doesn't explain whether or not we've been able to travel back and forth in time. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, <clears throat> we have this thing now where, you know, people, I, I, I used to call them, and I still do, actually, you know, people, people call, they talk about the Mandela effect, which I think a lot of it is just people misremembering things. I don't have a lot of faith in, in the brain and in memory. But there is an experience which, is, which I call TEP, which is transient environment phenomena, which, as I've spoken to people over the past 30 years, seems to be an, an actual phenomena of people who have lived in the same area or have worked in the same place for a long extended period of time. And then one day they'll notice a building or a house that they never saw before. Or 
something that they've always known was there is gone. And they might be the only person that remembers it. Um, so, you know, you drive around, I, I've lived in the same city my whole life, uh, even though I've traveled all over, but there has been an instance where I was driving down a road near a street where I grew up. This is just a personal experience. And there was a hotel where I have never seen a hotel before. Now, obviously that can be a glitch in my memory, or I was just blocking it out, um, for 20 years, but everyone else remembers it except for me. And I hear this from people all the time. I was driving down the road and then there was this barn in a field, but there had never been anything in that field before. And, and so that could be someone altering a timeline, pushing us all into a different timeline than we were before. Um, you know, science fiction writers write about this more eloquently than anyone else. There's a great Isaac Asimov book called The Gods Themselves, which is about time travelers and how meticulous they have to be to not move, touch, or do anything because it will splinter the timeline into a multitude of new timelines. And I think if we had that technology, that's where we would be at this point. It would, you would be ineffective as a time traveler because you would be so limited in scope as to what you could do. Do you believe then the John Teeter story, or do you think that is just one giant fantasy that took off and disappeared with a lot of mysticism? Yeah, I think it came around at the time. You know, it was kind of proto-internet. Um, I think it was kind of the original Reddit creepypasta story that took a life of its own and has kind of grown into a massive legend now. Uh like you said, we do have new stories popping up all the time about chrononauts and people who were raised at a young age to travel to Mars and learn, uh, you know, secret technology that the government has. Uh, you know, obviously, when you deal with conspiracy theories, you have people who say, well, of course, they'd let them talk because they'll just sound crazy and no one will believe them anyway. But if if we have that technology, there's no way that we're I'm speaking about you and me and your listeners as just normal everyday people that we're going to find out about it. Uh, it would be so covert and so highly classified and it wouldn't, again, uh, if it's owned by one government, I mean, those are the, the greatest secrets that, that you'll never know. And I've always found it interesting too, when it comes to these really super secret projects, whether it be time travel or UFOs or the technology to have a UFO like plane people always expect the president to know about it. You know, the president is a person who at, at most is going to be powerful for eight years. Uh, there's no way that you would tell that person all of the greatest secrets that the United States has. Including what happened at Roswell. Including what happened at Roswell. I actually had, uh, in 2001, I was running for mayor of my hometown, and that was, or it was 2000, and George... Uh, W. Bush was running for president at the time, and he came to my hometown to do a whistle-stop tour, and everybody was asking him, the mayoral candidates and the, the city commission candidates were all asking him questions, and he got to me, and I figured, well, this is my opportunity. And so my question to him was, if you had, if you're elected president, would you be willing to release any and all information that the government has regarding unidentified flying objects? And the flurry of activity around me was amazing but some marshals grabbed my shoulders pulled me out of the crowd someone grabbed him pushed him into a car the car took off 
they threw me at the feet of the CNN crew that was there and someone holding the microphone for the CNN crew was like, well, that was the wrong question. And what's funny to me is people are like, well, do you think he knew something? No, but that's how that community sees someone who's willing to ask a question about UFOs. I obviously, in their mind, was a threat, not because I'm questioning the nature of government, but because it would be crazy to ask about UFOs. So in the minds of people who are at an elevated level inside the government, politically, monetarily, uh, people like you and I and your listeners who question the nature of our existence are crazy. That had to be a freaky experience, John. Like, it was fun. I mean, it's a, it's a, a, you know, pretty funny story to be able to say that, you know, you asked the future president about UFOs. Uh, there's actually a, a much cooler, if I, had, if I can take a minute, much cooler part to that story, which was when W. Bush uh, announced that he might run, a book was written about him by a guy named J.H. Hatfield. And it was called Fortunate Son. It's since been republished. But at the time, they wrote this book. It was a tell-all biography, everything that we know about Bush now, things like skipping out on military air service, the fact that he had done cocaine, the fact that Laura Bush had hit someone in a car accident and killed them, stuff that we know now. But they printed up this book, St. Martin's Press. Um, they fact-checked it, printed it up. They sent it to all of the bookstores all over the country, and they said, don't sell these until he actually announces he's going to run for president, and then we'll sell it out, and it'll be a bestseller. I was dating a girl at the time, and I told her, open up those boxes and get me two books because it's going to sell out, and I want them. So she did that. Um, but in the interim, the Bush family found out about this book, had them all recalled, and then had 75,000 copies burned. Uh, they sued St. Martin's Press, and they had that book burned. But I had two copies on a shelf. So I immediately ran to the, the store, had my girlfriend sell them to me. I had them in my possession. So before I asked Bush that question, it was about six months later, he came to my town. Before I asked him that question, I took the flip jacket off of that book, switched it with a book that he had written. And when he walked through the crowd, when he first got there, I said, can you sign your book for me? Opened it up to a blank page and had him sign it. So sitting in my house right now, I have a book that was burned and banned by the Bush family, autographed by George Bush. That is amazing. Wow. That's ballsy, my friend. That is, that is ballsy. Like I, I'm clapping for you on that one. That is just an amazing story. I'm like sitting here, like wow. Like a lot of people wouldn't think of that. I was afraid they would, you know, I, that first blank page in a book. That's what I was holding it open to, hoping that he wouldn't look any further because he would have seen that it wasn't his his autobiography that he had written, but the biography by Hatfield. Now, of course, the ending to that story is within three months. After that, the author of that book was found dead in a hotel room. Ah, weird. Very weird. See how that happens? Yeah. Yeah, you just put that in a safe place, because I think that one might be worth some money in a few years. <laughs> Someday. Exactly. Or end up in the Smithsonian somewhere. That's an amazing story. Wow. And you're public with that. I'm surprised your house hasn't been broken into looking for that. Oh, I don't have any secrets at all. Yeah, well, uh, I've seen my I, I've seen the files from when I requested back in the '90s on me. If they're watching me, they're watching me. When I moved into my new house uh, six years ago, 
I had gone, I'd lived there for about a week and I pulled up in front and, and the Detroit field office for the, the FBI was sitting outside of my house because we have kind of a running joke. Some, I know that they'll come to my lectures in Detroit sometimes. And so I, I know that if they want me, they know where I'm at and there's nothing I can really do about it. I want to get to a couple more questions from our audience here because I always, I never, you know, I, I always want to make sure I get their questions in because they're such a big part of this show. Amy, who's a brand new listener to our show, she's on hashtag Space Out Radio on Twitter. She's asking, John, what is your take on hellhounds, devil dogs, black dogs, and have you ever had a profound experience with them? Um, I haven't, actually. Uh, it's one of the very few kind of experiences that I, I don't think I've ever had. Um, there was, uh, in Michigan, we have a lot of uh, big black cat phenomena where people see giant, large black cats. Uh, but the closest thing I come to to devil dogs and hellhounds and, and big evil dogs is the fact that I live in Michigan. So every now and then I have to explore the dog man phenomena. So last year I had a gentleman who had seen a dog standing against a tree, um, and when he walked toward it, it ran off on its hind legs. Uh, I don't know if that really fits uh, devil dogs, but in this gentleman's mind, he called it a demon, uh, even though he drew it as a dog, uh, and it more fits the dogman morphology. And a good friend of this show, Linda Godfrey, is all over that dogman. If anybody's going to find oh, yeah, that... Linda- yeah, Linda and I have talked about it because uh, when I went to investigate that sighting, there were uh, we recovered hairs from it, and so I had the hairs tested and sampled um, at a college here in Michigan, and the hair sampling came back. There was a 82 percent chance that the hair was coyote, and then the other uh, percentage was indeterminate. So again, I'm always more fascinated by the indeterminate than by what has been determined. Linda actually has a story of mine in her latest book. Really? That's awesome. She's great. Yeah. I I absolutely adore her. When I had her on the air afterwards, I was talking to her and I was telling her about this black triangle story that was over my house. And she, she actually got back to me. She's like, can I interview you about that? And I said, well... Yeah, and she sends me the piece of paper that I got to sign off that I give permission and everything. And I said, put a little caveat on there that I need an autograph copy. In <laughs> of course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, little did I know getting into this that I would be quoted in a well, book. We'll be, yeah, I think that we are doing an event together in Mich- at the Michigan Paracon and Michigan's uh, UP in August. I think she's going to be there with, with us again this year. Absolutely love Linda. Good friend of this show. The other question that I wanted to get to before we have to call it the night here, and my God, this three hours flew by. And this comes from Lisa, who's a dear member of our audience on a nightly basis. She is saying, what is your opinion of this whole Mandela effect that is going on? Are you buying into it, or do you think there is just a lot of weird coincidences? So I think that what's being called the Mandela effect in large scale are just people wanting to remember things in a certain way. Um, like I've said multiple times throughout the past three hours, we know that our brain is limited in scope and we have bad memories. Um, I don't deny that the universe might be shifting and changing certain insignificant things that we're all recognizing, 
But when it comes to, you know, the Berenstain Bears or whether or not someone's alive or dead, uh, I do find coincidences. You know, it's, it's funny. I speak at my lectures. I talk about coincidences because the dictionary definition of a coincidence is, you know, seemingly unrelated events which are related for a seemingly unknown reason. So a coincidence happens because we don't know why. And so it's as significant to me as ghost hunting. There's no reason for it to happen. And yet these coincidences do happen. Everybody seems to remember something at one time or all of these coincidences add up to, you know, a larger coincidence that happens. And it's kind of a cascading effect. But I think a lot of it is just people wanting to believe that they thought something was right and then fortifying and, and kind of regurgitating this idea that, oh, we all remembered it wrong. Because there are obviously huge portions of us that don't remember it wrong on certain things. Uh, Very interesting. It's all day long of saying our of Chuck Barris and I saw that dozens times by Tuesday and by Wednesday Chuck Barris had died and so I think that's really interesting too like what was the effect of millions of people thinking that Chuck Barris had died did that actually help or, or cause him to actually die in this reality so coincidences are very fascinating to me I don't know if there's much beyond the Mandela effect than people wanting strangeness uh, to be that visible and that understandable. It's, it's much, it's much harder to piece together the nature of reality than just saying, Oh, it's the Mandela effect and the universe is shifting and changing around us. That might be happening, but there are weirder things happening, which don't seem as weird. Ghosts, coincidences, people who say that they've never had a, a ghost encounter will talk to you ad nauseum about their coincidences, which I think are as strange. Strangest ghost story I heard comes from a good friend of this show, Eric Cooper, from Forest Moon Paranormal. And he spent 19 and a half years in the United States Army, did four tours of duty in different countries and different scenes of action. And one of the times when he was in Germany, one of his friends and him came walking out of their place where they were staying, I believe. And they started walking towards a bar, and all of a sudden both of them experienced everything go black and white and they looked down this alley and they actually saw Adolf Hitler and his crew getting into a limousine but before that him and Hitler actually made eye contact wow it is one of the most bizarre and amazing ghost stories that I've ever heard and that's crazy yeah it is unbelievable unbelievable on on that yeah but i love it i mean that's why i do what i do i love the stories i love what we're all seem to be experiencing together you know the the kind of skeptic trope that you hear trope the, the kind of skeptic mantra that you hear chanted is you know you're making an extraordinary claim we demand extraordinary evidence but that works the other way too right so millions of people for a thousand years have had paranormal experiences and science is saying they're wrong. That's an extraordinary claim that they're all wrong. 
and science does not have any extraordinary evidence to prove that they're right. Um, so it works both ways. Something does seem to be happening. We do seem to be experiencing all of this very strange phenomena. And it's always been curious to me why no one is more fascinated in it. You would think the first time some cognitive cavemen were sitting around and one of them died, the first question they would want to answer is what happened to that guy? And they would have spent as much time and energy as they could figuring out what happens after that person leaves their body or their body ceases to work in that way. And it's just one of those things that we don't want to confront because we know we all have a doomsday and we don't know when that doomsday is. Just amazing the energy that can stick around. John Tenney, thank you so much for being on Spaced Out Radio tonight. Much appreciated. When's your next public appearance? So if people go to weirdlectures.com, there's an events page and that has all of my events on there. And I'm terrible with knowing when I'm going to be at places. But if they go to Weird Lectures events, they can see where I'll be at. And if they want to follow me on Twitter, it's John E.L. Tenney. Instagram is John E.L. Tenney. Facebook is John E.L. Tenney. Or they can just type John E.L. Tenney into Google, and it'll lead them to all the stuff. Absolutely. John, I'm going to get you to hold on. Thank you so much for being with us on Space Out Radio tonight i got to wrap this thing up, unfortunately. If you're listening on our terrestrial side, WQEE 99 Rock the Key and the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans, you hear Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, our official music of Spaced Out Radio. Bumblefoot brings us in and takes us home every single night on this show. Tomorrow night on the program, 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, J.C. Johnson will be with us. We're talking cryptids all night long. It's going to be great. SpacedOutRadio.com. If you want to check out our website, check out the Encounter Online, our brand new news section on our website and if you want to check out our archives go to our youtube channel spaced out radio show tune in itunes radioguide.fm talk stream live and on stitcher hell we're every place all you got to do is click the button and we're here to play for you thank you so much for listening to spaced out radio tonight your participation on twitter and in the chat rooms was amazing Thanks to John. We had a bunch of brand new first-time listeners tuning us in tonight. I hope you take the honest time to let us earn your listening ears once again. I'll be back in 21 hours from now. I hope you are, too. Do me a favor, friends. Tell a friend. That's the way we're going to grow this thing. Big, large, and in charge. Let's own the night together. Good night.